As we open the book of Job, we are starting now to actually exegete the, the passage. We gave you an overview before about suffering and relationship to, to God. Tonight, we look at the foundation is being laid for innocent suffering. Now, when I talk about innocent suffering, in the absolute sense of the word, none of us are ever totally innocent. We are not completely sinless. And we realize that ultimately, uh, sorrow and misery has come into this world because of the fall. We acknowledge all of that. But what I'm talking about tonight is not sin mediatedly, but sin immediately, meaning that a specific wrongdoing in the life of Job as a disciplinary action. That's not why Job is suffering. And that is exactly why his friends say he's suffering. He's suffering because of his sinfulness, because of his disobedience, uh, because secretly harboring things in his heart that God is aware of and is trying to bring Job to a place of repentance. So that's what we're talking about tonight. And the first five verses are given to us to demonstrate the reality of Job's righteousness. The point of the passage is to demonstrate the reality that Job did not suffer as a result of his sinfulness or because of some irresponsibility on his part. Job had not brought this misery upon himself. He was not reaping the consequences of what he had sown. Job was a righteous man. As we are introduced to Job, there's a lot that we don't know about Job. There's some that we do know. Job was blessed. Was he a self-made man or had he inherited his wealth? We don't know. Had he always been rich or had he recently come into a windfall? We don't know. When had Job begun to worship God? Many years prior or more recently? Again, we don't know. We don't know any of those details. And I think one of the reasons is so that we can all relate to Job. That we can see Job in ourselves. What we are to see is that Job is a wealthy and prominent individual who is quite unique in his love for and devotion to God. Just how unique? Well, in Job chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him in all the earth. So, God's evaluation of Job is that he is the most righteous person on the face of the earth. Now, that's a pretty remarkable commendation. The most righteous person on the face of the earth. That's God's evaluation of who Job is. So, let's look at this righteous man, Job. And his righteousness is depicted for us in a number of ways. First, he was spiritually mature. That is found in this word blameless in the New American Standard. There was a man in the land of us. His name was Job. The man was blameless. The uh, King James translates that as perfect. The idea is that Job was complete. He was not lacking in any area in his relationship to the Lord. When it's talking about perfect, 
It's talking about being complete. We might talk about uh, a, a child being born perfect, meaning that they are whole. They're not missing an arm, a leg, a, a finger, a toe. They are whole. Job was whole. Job was mature enough that he could take all that Satan would dish out and still remain faithful to God. Job was mature enough that he could withstand the poor counsel and bad theology of his three friends. Job was mature enough that he could overcome the limitations that his wife suffered. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And I have here, keep in mind that Job's wife experienced all the same losses that Job had experienced, except for the physical sufferings. So, we'll give Job's wife a pass, if you will. You can understand her own frustration and misery in all of this, and why she might say to her husband, curse God and die. She is frustrated, she's upset, doesn't know what's going on. And we must keep in mind that these first five verses are for our benefit. They are revealed to us, actually more than just the first five verses, but tonight we're just looking at the first five. This evaluation is something that Job is not privy to. Job doesn't know what's going on. Job doesn't hear all of this. Uh, He doesn't know about the battle between Satan and God. He doesn't understand at all the purpose for these things happening to him. That's important to understand his temptation. His struggle, his situation. Job is clueless as to why this is happening to him. But he's mature enough to withstand the negative influences around about him. Satan, his wife, his closest friends. That's a part of what maturity is able to breed. Some people in their immaturity are very dependent. You think about a child. An immature child is very dependent upon their parents. Okay? Their self-worth, their their value. They are afraid when their parents are are gone. They may may cry. They they want their parents. They want to sit on their lap. They, They need to be nurtured. They need to be nourished. They need to be... Uh, reaffirmed. They need to be held and talked about how you love them and care for them. They, they, they need others for they are dependent. So too, many Christians are perhaps spiritual but immature. They really need to be around other strong Christians. They need to be held up. They, they need to be undergirded. They need somebody to come around and say, it's okay. Hang in there. Uh, Job faces all of these temptations alone. He gets no good advice anywhere. He gets no positive reinforcement anywhere. It is just Job. And he's limited to his own knowledge and resources. He's mature. The second thing is Job stood spiritually tall... For he was morally straight. Verse 1. It refers to him as upright. Upright. Job was the kind of man that the Pharisees professed to be but were not. 
He was what the Pharisees liked to present themselves to be. Job did not merely appear to be spiritual. He was spiritual. He was not crooked in his dealings or his ways. Job did not wander from the path of righteousness. I'm, I'm using all these terms that are the antithesis of being upright. You see, to be crooked. Or the opposite of being straight is to wander in his path. Job was consistent in his moral behavior and conduct. Job had a holy reverence for God. Fearing God. One who fears God strives to please God in a faithful obedience inspired by love. Job's motivation for obedience and service was his profound respect for God. Job sought to promote God's honor and glory. It would be this profound commitment to God that would ultimately be tested. That is really what this is all about. God said to Satan, Have you considered my man Job, my servant Job? There is no one like him on the face of the earth. And Satan's reply is, Does Job serve you for not? Take all these things away from you, and he will curse you. The presupposition on the part of Satan is that Job serves God because of a pragmatic reason. Job serves God because of what he gets out of it. Look, you've blessed him immensely. Take those blessings away, and he's not going to serve you at all. And God affirms that the reason that Job serves him is not because of what God has done, but because of Job's sincere and true love for God. Next, Job was repulsed by evil, turning away from evil. Job's outward walk was indicative of his inward desires. Job sought God and rejected that which ran contrary to God. In Job 31.1, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So Moses, uh, excuse me, so that uh, Job made this covenant. He made a resolve that that he wasn't even going to look upon a, a young woman. In my Sunday school class, we talked this morning about David's sin with Bathsheba. How different, you see, David was, even though David was a righteous man, even though David was a man after God's own heart, he was not a Job. He was not a Job. And Job had an inward persuasion. He wasn't just concerned with outward conduct and behavior. He wasn't satisfied that he didn't commit the act of adultery. Even inwardly, he was guarding his heart. He was concerned about who he was in private, not just who he was in public, not just how people perceived him, but how he really was. And many times uh, we might do the right things for the wrong reasons because we are concerned of what people will think about us. Sometimes that's used of God to keep us from sin. We're afraid of ruining our testimony, what people may think. About us, But that's far different than doing it simply because we hate evil and Job hated evil. Job lived a blessed life. Job was blessed with a large family. Job 1, 2, seven daughters, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Job, contrary to his culture, prized not only his sons but his daughters. Job was really unique. 
And one of the ways that you see that is that Job gave an inheritance to his daughters. And on all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. That was just unheard of in that particular part of the world and in that day. But Job had a sense of fairness. Job had a sense of, of righteousness, and he granted an inheritance to his daughters. Job's wife is not introduced at this point in the narrative. Most likely because the emphasis of the passage is going to be upon what he lost, namely his children and possessions. So we know very little about Mrs. Job. We know the she said, curse God and die. And we know at the end of the book, she has his children once again. Other than that, Job's wife's out of the picture. And as I say, I think initially it's because She's not taken. Job's children are taken. Job's wealth is taken. So all this is to narrate what he lost. What he lost. Job was uh, uh, four. It is noteworthy that it appears that Job had but one wife. That was rare in the day for a man of his stature and wealth. This is another practical example of Job's righteousness. As you read the Old Testament, The number of patriarchs that had one wife, you can count on your hand. That's how rare it was. Even among the most godly. Even among the most righteous. Even among those that had a poor role model. Uh, I think of Job. I think of Joseph. Joseph had but one wife. That's pretty amazing. Because he rises to be second in command in the land of Egypt. He's got power, he's got wealth, but it doesn't move him in that direction. He certainly had a poor role model in his, his own uh, father and all the wives that he had. But Joseph stands unique in his righteousness. And it's seen even in his conduct with uh, his wife. The point is that Job has a godly family. Next, Job was blessed with great wealth. Job had a great deal of livestock. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. Job had a large number of servants and very many servants. Job was the richest, most powerful, renowned man in the East Country. I have, Job was the Ben Cartwright of his day, for those of you who can remember Bonanza. How many people remember Bonanza? Every once in a while I like to show these old... old uh, My mind just went blank. These old shows, okay, because the younger generation has it on us. There are certain things that we don't know about the computer and all that good stuff. Well, we know about some shows that you don't know about, okay. And uh, Ben Cartwright, yeah, he was he was uh, a powerful man. Was he the most powerful man on the face of the earth? I don't know. I don't know. But Job was. It says that he was the greatest. Of all the men of the East. Now when you understand that the East was the area where people were the most wealthy. It's not hard to deduct that Job was not only the most righteous man on the face of the earth. 
He was the most wealthy man on the face of the earth. And that's why Satan said that Job serves you. Look what you've given him. God says there's no one like Job. Satan says, you're right. There's nobody like Job. There's nobody like Job in his righteousness. <laughs> there's nobody like Job in his wealth. Take that away, and then we'll see what Job is like. Job's blessed with a large and caring family. Job 1.4 And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. What is described for us as a caring, nurturing family that enjoyed each other. Job was blessed with a godly family. Job 1.5 And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, now listen to this, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Two things. First, I think we would understand sons here as including... Uh, uh, the daughters, okay? In the Hebrew, uh, sometimes the masculine is used as the all-inclusive word. Uh, just like in English, and I'm a minus one blank in the example, but, you know, we'll talk about men, and we're really talking about mankind. We're talking about men and women, okay? So, he's not just concerned about his sons. He's also concerned about his, his daughters. We know that uh, specifically... Uh, because he's going to offer sacrifices for each one of them. So, my point to you is that his concern is that they may have cursed God in their hearts. Outwardly, as far as Job knows, the behavior of his adult children, they're not their own houses, so they're grown. Job just didn't say, well, my kids are grown and they're out of the house and now I don't have any more concern or worry or responsibility. No, Job's children have grown. They're out of the house. But he's still praying for them. And he's concerned that not only outwardly are they walking with God, he knows nothing that they are doing that's untoward or that they shouldn't be doing, but he's concerned about their inner being. Maybe deep down inside, they are not walking with God as they should. Because Job understands that real righteousness is not external, it's internal. Job is concerned about his own heart, and Job is concerned about the hearts of his adult children. Again, there is a real understanding of righteousness is. So many people are satisfied if their kids just aren't getting in trouble. Or if their kids look good. You know, their hair's not too long, they don't have tattoos, they, you know, they don't have you know, pierced uh, tongues and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm not here about tattoos and pierced tongues. My point is, some people, that's what they're concerned about. And as long as that's no one not going on, wow, okay, we're in good shape here. Or the fact that, look around and, you know, my children are here, my adult children, they're sitting here in church. Well, that's great, but who knows what's going on in the hearts? Who knows about the struggles that can be present? Who knows about the concerns? And so Job is concerned about their inner being. 
So notice how Job manifested true spiritual concern for his family. First, Job communicated his concern for his his family's spiritual well-being. It says that Job would send and consecrate them. Exactly how he did that, I don't know. But the point was that he made them aware of his spiritual concern and care for them. That is invaluable. It is wonderful to have someone communicate to you their concern and their prayer for you. My dad, for years before he died, before he came to live with us, uh, when he lived in Blandon, I could count on, almost without fail, every Saturday night, he'd call me. This was days before cell phones and before long-distance plans. Every Saturday night, he'd make a long-distance phone call and say to me, I'm praying for you as you present the Word of God tomorrow. Without fail. It was wonderful to know that he was praying for me. It also was a wake-up call. It was a recognition that I ought to take this duty very, very seriously, carefully. Uh, His concern was helpful. Job was that kind of father to his adult children, communicating to them of his spiritual concern. Secondly, Job's concern for the spiritual well-being of the children held a high priority in his life. It says that he rose up early in the morning to do this. Next, Job's spiritual concern for his children was well-directed. Offering burnt offerings. He, he didn't just have warm thoughts in his heart about his kids. He didn't just have concern. He did something. And the, and the something that he did was, was right. He offered offerings for them. He, he was going before God, pleading for God, for their well-being, for their, for their uh, strength. Next, Job's concern for the spiritual well-being of his children extended to each and every one of them. It says, uh, he rose up early morning, burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So there is the idea of both sons and daughters. And E, Job's concern for the spiritual well-being of his children was rich with understanding. Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. F, Job's concern for the spiritual well-being of his family was consistent. Thus, Job did Continually, year after year, feast and festival after feast and festival. This wasn't something that Job had adopted at some point in his life, thought it was a good thing, and then just kind of let it drift away. He was consistent. He was habitual. He did this constantly. So, application. Number one. What a comfort for Job when his children died that he knew that they were with the Lord. That, that's a great help. When our children die. That you know their spiritual condition. 
Job knew the spiritual condition of his children. And he could be comforted that they had died. Number two, what a comfort for Job when his children died that he knew that he had done all that he could do uh, for them. Sometimes we live with regrets. Sometimes we look back in our lives and we wish we would have done differently. Again, Job wasn't sinless, but he was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. So that says to me that, that Job had very few regrets as you look back over his life. He had done what was right. He had done what was consistent. That is a source of great comfort. And I submit to you at the same time, that was a source of great temptation. Because he has to deal with the reality that he was habitually, regularly praying for these children. And they were all lost. Doesn't that begin to raise the question, are our prayers of value? Are prayers meaningful? Was Job wasting his time when he'd offer those sacrifices? Where was God now? For he had faithfully prayed for his children. We're going to look at, in greater detail, uh, the things that, that, that Job lost. But I would give you a foreshadow of what is most important to Job. Because Satan tempts him going from the lesser to the greater. Okay, From the least to the small. He's trying to get Job to sin as quickly and as disrespectfully as you can, if you will. So the first thing that Job loses is his wealth. Why? Because it's less important to him. The last thing he loses is his children. Why? Because they are the most important thing to him. When that fails, the ante gets raised. And the ante gets raised. And the ante gets raised. Until Job loses his children. That was the most devastating blow to Job. And of course, he's going to lose them all. We don't want to run too far ahead. Number three, why are we told this? So that we would understand that there was no fault in Job's children that would justify their deaths. Not only had Job suffered innocently, his children died innocently. They weren't being punished by God. They weren't being struck down for having committed some terrible sin. As far as Job knows, his children were living righteously. And he was even concerned about their thought life and what was going on inwardly. And it wasn't because of their sin. You see, and that's important because the theology among the rabbis was that evil comes either because of what you did or your children do. And even in the time of Jesus, if you remember, when they disciples see a man that's born blind, they ask Jesus the question, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Whose fault is it? Was it 
the man who was born blind, or was it the parents? We have this introduction to the book of Job to answer the question, whose fault is it that these children die? Is it Job's fault? Or is it their fault? And the answer comes back, it's neither. It's neither. And Jesus said to the disciples, this man was born blind so that the power of God might be displayed. That's why these people were taken. That the power and grace of God might be displayed. Number four. Another important lesson. Though Job's children were godly, their lives were not spared. One thing that we need to guard against when we look at the book of Job. Because I read it in commentary after commentary after commentary. And after a while, it just, it, just, uh, it just concerns me. Because there's this basic understanding that Job was wealthy. And of course, at the end of the book, you know, he gets double everything back. He gets twice as much money. He gets twice as much animals. He gets the same number of children. And the commentators point out that's because his children are already in heaven. So he's got double children, etc., etc., etc. But usually then the application is made. If you hang in there, the end will make up and you'll be twice as better off. That's the message. Hang in there and your life at the end will be twice as good as it is now. But brothers and sisters, that's exactly what the book of Job is not about. It, because that motivates us once again to be motivated to serve God because eventually we'll get twice as much. We'll have twice as much money. We'll have twice as much cattle. We'll have twice as much of these good things. Job wasn't serving God because he was expecting twice as much back. That came out of the blue. And one way that we know it, and what most commentators don't focus on at all, is, but these children die. They're not getting twice as much back. They're not being blessed, if you will, in an earthly sense. They're in the presence of God. So, in that sense, they're better off, but that's not the way most people would view it. And I'm just simply telling you that they're not materially blessed. The book of Job does not teach us that you are going to be wealthy in relationship to your righteousness. That there is this equation. And the more righteous you are, the more wealthy you're going to be. So Job's the righteous man, most, uh, uh, righteous man on the face of the earth, so he gets to be the most wealthy man on the face of the earth. So he ends up being the most wealthy man on the face of the earth by two. Which is really incredible. But that's not the book of Job. That's not what it's about. Job is faithful to God simply because he loves God and wants to promote his honor and glory. And that's what we should be about. And we should serve God. Because we love him and we want to bring honor and glory to him. Conclusion. A. There are many blessings associated with living a godly life. 
There are no guarantees, but there are many blessings. Okay? Uh, you can see it in, in Job's family. Uh, again, no guarantees, but it's no coincidence that his children get along. It's no coincidence that there is this incredible love and bond between Job and his children. It's, it's a product. It's a, it's a fruit. It's, it's natural, if you will. Godliness brings unity. Godliness brings peace among people. These blessings are not guaranteed, but they are common. See, even in the midst of suffering, there is much to rejoice in when one has lived a godly life. What keeps Job going? It's his reflection. It is his looking back. That verse that I referred to earlier comes at the end of the book. It comes at the, at the very end of his suffering. He looks back and he said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not even look upon a virgin. That gives him comfort. One of the, the greatest comforts in life is knowing that we have done right. One of the greatest sorrows in life is having to deal with the question, did I bring all of this on myself? Is this the just recompense, do me? Are these the natural outcomes of my sinful behaviors and decisions? The way of the transgressor is hard, the scripture says. There's a lot of suffering that's associated with ungodly choices. All I'm saying to you tonight is, better to suffer having lived righteously than to have suffered having lived ungodly. Because we may say to ourselves, well, what's the point then? Why live godly if we still suffer? I tell you, the suffering is in a different way. It's mitigated. And Job, in his maturity, understands the value of having lived a godly life regardless of the material and physical outcomes. And the greatest value we're going to see is the example that Job gives for all of us all these thousands of years later. This example. And what a wonderful thing it is to have a patriarch in your family to be that example that everybody can look up to. Everybody can draw strength from. Everybody can admire. We need heroes today. People disappoint us left and right. We hear so many scandals from politicians. I've just gotten to the place where I don't think anything could surprise me anymore. You know? I, I get to the place where I just almost expect the next shoe to fall. You know, if you look hard enough, if you, if you uncover enough stuff, you're going to find dirt on somebody. I don't know why anybody would want to run for politics. Because you know they're just going to be examined until there are very few heroes. Those that we have are in comic books and mythological characters. 
Job is a real hero. Job is a real testimony to his friends, his family. Job's a real hero to us. And I say to you people, if for no other reason to live a godly life is to be that hero in your own family, for somebody to be able to look to and draw strength. Because remember when I started out, I talked about maturity. And how children need somebody to reassure, somebody to help them. Families need patriarchs. They need somebody that they look up to that they're not disillusioned. They're not disappointed. They draw strength from because they look at mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle. And they say, you know, they did it. Look how they lived. Look how they prayed. Look what they accomplished for God. Let's seek to be heroes. People from whom others can draw strength. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for for Job. We thank you for his godliness. We thank you for his word that reveals it to us. And we simply would pray, O God, that you would help us to be like Job. And certainly not every godly person goes through the things that Job did. So we have no fear in praying to be like Job. doesn't mean that we're going to lose everything. Oh Lord, help us to see, though, that godliness is not about these external things. It's about ultimately pleasing you. And the greatest joy of Job's life was not when he got his possessions back, Not even when his children were born. But when he realized your approval of him. When he realized your assessment of him. When he realized that in your thinking, he was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And you delighted in him. Lord, help us. To be a delight to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.